Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 then. Genesis chapter 6, we're going to be picking up kind of where we left off. Actually, by way, a little bit of, by way of review here. Last week we looked at verses 5 through 9, basically. Verses 5 through the first half of verse 9. And some of the stuff I want to just look at real quickly by way of review, like I mentioned. Verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Here you find in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5, 6, and 7, you find in verse 5 what God saw. And then in verse 6, how he felt. And then in verse 7, what he intends to do. All right, so in verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. God saw the wickedness of man. He saw both its intensiveness and its extensiveness. Okay, so he saw that the sin of man was, was deep, if you will. And he saw that the sin of man was wide. All right, so he saw the sinfulness of man. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Second half of verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You realize God can see our hearts, right? I can't see Levette's heart. I can't see Dave's heart. I can't see Esther's heart. I can't see a person's heart. You can't see a person's heart. We can only judge actions. We can judge fruit, okay? But when it comes to judging a man's heart, God can do that. God can do that. You remember the incident in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where Samuel's having a conversation about the, the selection of a king. There's the little reminder that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. We're limited to the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That should be a challenge to us as well. If we're really good at fooling people, we should recognize there's a warning for us in that God sees our hearts. And if our motives are impure, that's something that we're not going to get away with when we stand before God. And so God looks at the heart. God judges the heart. Verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Or at least my translation says sorry. Lots of other translations will have different things there. Some of them have uh, the Lord was grieved or the Lord regretted or the Lord relented. Or even in the King James Version, the Lord repented. The Lord repented that he had made man on the earth. This passage, and specifically understanding this verse, has created a large amount of discussion as to what exactly does it mean. And we touched on it a little bit last week. One of the things that you'll remember that we touched on is that the idea of repentance, and this is not just an Old Testament, but a New Testament perspective as well. The idea of repentance carries with it not just a feeling. You know, it's not just an emotion. It carries with it the idea of action as well. And you remember we wrote up here on the board, Repentance equals feeling, or if you will, emotion, plus action. And you remember that we also talked about last week, or we also listed under here, that faith similarly is belief plus action. Okay, so repentance and faith, they're both action, they carry an action component to the definition of those 
of those words, all right? So if we're to understand the Christian idea of repentance or the biblical idea of repentance or the biblical idea of faith, all right, they carry with them an action component. Just as faith without action wouldn't be faith, all right, does that make sense? If you had belief only and you didn't have action to back up your faith, you didn't have action to back up your belief, you wouldn't have faith because faith is a component, it's a, it's a combination of these two things. You need a belief but you need more than that. You need something that shows by a changed life is usually what we see. A changed life that shows that that belief is founded and substantiated in faith. So just as belief plus action, so up here, feeling plus action. Okay. So what happens is when we translate this verse, some of your translating committees, because there isn't an equivalent in English, they'll, they'll have to kind of choose between one or the other. Some of them will choose a word that's an action word. Some of them will choose a word that's a, an emotion-based word. But basically what happens is you end up with an incomplete translation in English because there isn't an English equivalent for that Hebrew word, naham. Okay? And you remember last week we talked about the action in this sometimes can be described as a turning to God, and the action involved in this one is a turning from sin. So in repentance, the action is turning from sin, and in faith, the action is turning to God. That's just a general description, okay? So here we're looking at the idea that God repented or that God was sorry or that God regretted, okay? I want to read to you John Hartley in his commentary on Genesis. He has an interesting thing he says about this. He says, the word that's translated here as grieve or sorry is very difficult to translate, especially when God is the subject, all right? One of its meanings is to take a different course of action, as a result of one's compassion being either warmed or grieved, as the example here. Translating it grieve captures the emotion behind the action, but fails to convey the person's strong resolve to take a different course of action. Okay, And then he ends up uh, by saying at the end of his paragraph that there is no English equivalent for this word, and that's one of the reasons why it creates some of the confusion that it does. Kenneth Matthews, in his commentary on Genesis, he ends up saying, God's response of grief or sorrow over the making of humanity, however is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It is what man has made of himself. Okay, So it's not that God is sorry that he made man. It's sorry that he sees what man has become by the choices that man has made. An interesting man shows up four times just in these three verses, in verses 5, 6, and 7. So the emphasis on the reason for the problem being man all right, ends up showing up four times in these three verses. Also, uh, one other thing that's interesting as well, the component that carries with it the idea of sorrow or grief. All right, This word is actually used in other places in Genesis to talk about the sorrow or grief a person experiences at the loss of a loved one. All right. So you see it in the story of Isaac involving the grief over the loss of his mother, Sarah. And that's in chapter 24, verses, verse 67. And then Jacob over the loss of Joseph when he believes that Joseph has been torn by wild animals. Okay, And that's in 37, 35. And also Judah over the death of his wife, 38, 12. So the word carries with it the idea of, of a sorrow that you would maybe experience at the loss of a loved one. God experiencing a similar sorrow at the loss of mankind, his height or pinnacle of creation, and the detour that they've taken from bearing the image of God that he intended them to have. Kenneth Matthew also says, this does not say that the emotions of humans and God are equivalent in their entirety, either in intensity or in quality, for God does not grieve in the same way as men and women. And so right about now, I think it's an appropriate time to talk about this big word. Anthropomorph. 
is on. Okay, I'm not going to ask anybody to define it. I'm not going to put you on the spot like that. How about just a show of hands, though, who's heard of that word before or heard somebody mention it? Anthropomorphism. All right. This is made up of two words in the Greek. Anthropos, all right, and morphe. In the Greek, anthropos is, it's an attributing human characteristics, all right, or it's man, all right, and the pomorphism or the morphe is form, all right? So you basically got man and form. What does that mean? It means taking a description of something that you and I would recognize as being a human trait, all right, a human characteristic, a human feeling, or even a human carrying with it some idea of a human structure or member of your body, all right, and applying that or attributing that to God. Why would we do such a thing? Well, because it helps us to understand a little bit better who God is. But you've got to realize it's an imperfect application. Just as we are nowhere near God, so our understanding of God using human traits and characteristics is nowhere near the actual who God is. Okay, do you get what I mean? Let me give you some anthropomorphic examples. One might be where God says, I am going to strike down Pharaoh with my hand. We would read that and we go, okay, I've got to struggle with whether or not God has a hand. No, it's an anthropomorphic statement, all right? We're attributing to God something about which we would understand, and it helps us to better understand what he's trying to say, all right? So as we would read that and we go, I get what that means. Because if I was a king or a ruler or somebody in power and I could strike down somebody with my hand, I get the picture of what's being described there. That if anybody could strike somebody down, it would be God. If he strikes them down with their hand, we recognize God's a spirit. He doesn't have a hand that's just going to come out of the blue and strike down, you know, Pharaoh in Egypt. No, it's a figure of speech. It's using anthropomorphic language. All right. Another one might be his face. I turn my face away from evil. All right. Or I turn my face against the person who sins. All right. Again, attributing to God a face, it's an anthropomorphic likeness. All right. Or his mighty arm being described by the psalmist. Or the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Do you, get, do you see these human traits that are being applied to God, helping us to better understand using an anthropomorphic language? Let your ear be attentive to my prayers. Okay, we're familiar with that phrase. Heaven is my throne or the earth is my footstool. All right, as if God has feet that are just sticking out of, you know, outer space and <laughs> resting upon the earth. All right? So you get the anthropomorphic language. That has to do with parts of the body. All right, but how about feelings? We find that God is a jealous God. That's a human emotion that we're using to try to understand something about God's nature. All right? But you've got to realize our jealousy is not like God's jealousy. All right? Our jealousy is an imperfect illustration of what the jealousy of God might be conveying. Okay? Anger. All right? I have a certain kind of anger that I can understand when they say that God has an anger, but it's not the same anger. All right? My anger might lead to sin. Whereas God's anger, it's a different category of anger altogether. We're using anthropomorphic language or grief or sorrow, as we would see in this passage here. Okay, So anthropomorphic language, we're using human characteristics, human traits, human emotions, and applying them to God to help us to try to better understand because it's something we might be familiar with when we use the language that conveys those ideas. Okay, But recognize it falls far short of actually describing God. Okay, of actually describing God. We'll turn to Isaiah chapter 55. We really should look at these verses. 55 verses 8 and 9. Somebody mind reading these verses? It's going to be very familiar to you once you hear them. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we have a reminder there. God speaking, God himself speaking, and uh, Isaiah writing it down for our benefit, that even our thoughts and ways are hardly worth comparing to the ways and thoughts of God. All right? So this anthropomorphic language, we've got to understand, it's a different realm, and it's completely inadequate to describe who God is, but it serves a purpose of helping us to better understand who he is in his nature, in ways that we understand, in human ways, things that are familiar for us. Okay? Going back to Genesis, it says that God was grieved in his heart. All right? Grieved in his heart. It helps us to understand by reading those words that God wasn't indifferent about man's condition. It wasn't as if God just said, oh, well. It wasn't as if God said, huh, that didn't work out so well, <laughs> you know, or anything like that. It, it wasn't like there was an indifference on God's part. It's, it's that our condition being as it was, when we followed the in, inclinations of our wickedness, our wicked hearts, our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, as Jeremiah would say. And when we follow that path, it grieves God. It grieves God. And that's actually pretty amazing that we, being as low as we are, his creation could actually conjure up any feelings of grief towards us. You know, if I had an ant farm and one of my ants was rebellious, I don't know if I'd even notice. <laughs> you know what I mean? He notices. And if there was a rebellious ant, I'd probably say, you're creating trouble. And I'd probably squish it with my thumb and my finger and, you know, flick it out of the ant farm. He notices and he's grieved. And even more amazing, he does something about it by becoming one of them becoming one of us as we're coming into the season of advent pretty amazing that he would actually notice much less do anything about it i was going i was thinking that and as we become more christ-like then we should not be indifferent to man's condition either excellent excellent point too often we do right we're like i'm good i got my ticket to heaven and we think oh god just come and get me and we don't realize there was a day we weren't saved and there was a day that changed. And maybe we could be participating in God's plan somehow and seeing somebody else make that change too. Great point. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7 now. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. You remember how we talked about this is the genealogy. That was, our, that was our clue. That was our transition. We're moving into the next section of the book of Genesis. All right, the total of giving us an indication that we're moving into the next section. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man or a righteous man, as some of your translations will have. Just or righteous, perfect or blameless, and some of the translations say perfect or blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God, okay? This occurrence right here of the word for just or righteous in Hebrew is sadiq, and it is a word that appears here for the first time, has to do with righteousness. I want to take you to another passage as well. It kind of says the same thing. Genesis 7, 1, what does it say over there? Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Excellent. So we have there the second time that it occurs, we have a reiteration of basically what we just read about here in chapter 6, verse 9, that Noah was righteous. Noah had a certain righteousness about him that shows up twice. It shows up in chapter 6, verse 9. It shows up here in chapter 7, verse 1. Turn to chapter 15, verse 6. 
We're going to look at somebody else's righteousness. Chapter 15, verse 6. What does it say there? Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. That's interesting. So who are we talking about in this passage? Abraham. Abraham, good. So we're talking about Abraham. And how did he get righteousness? Believing. There was something that had to do with his belief. His belief ended up resulting in a righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, accounted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Hmm. So there's a relationship between belief and righteousness. Moving on from there, we also see that this word, if you look at other places where this word occurs, this word also occurs in the setting of describing the animals that would be suitable for a sacrifice. This is the word that's used in the Hebrew to describe an animal that you're to choose. And, and you remember, you weren't just to choose, well, you certainly weren't choose the lame animal. All right, You certainly didn't choose the animal that was sick or that was dying. All right, You chose the best. All right, You picked out one ideally that would be righteous or blameless or faultless or without flaw. Okay, That was the animal you would choose for your sacrifice. And God is saying that, that using that same language, that same word, that's Noah. In this generation, that's Noah. So you've got a generation that's characterized by wickedness. And God says, out of this huge you know, population on the earth, Noah is different from them. If you will, if that whole generation, all the people that are alive at the time, God's looking at them and they're characterized by wickedness, but there's something different about Noah. There's something different about Noah and the difference is this righteousness. All right? Go to 17.1, Genesis 17.1. What does it say there? And when Abraham was... Or Abram was 90 years old and nine. The Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Be thou perfect. Whew, that's a high standard. I'm glad I don't have that standard on me. <laughs> I see a couple of people looking up like they know what's coming. All right. Abraham is encouraged by God to be perfect. The language or the word that's used there translated as perfect, that's the same word that's used to describe Noah. All right, in chapter 6, it's the same word that's used to describe Abraham earlier in chapter 15. All right, It's the same word that's used to describe Noah and Abraham. Noah's righteousness becomes almost legendary in a sense. Turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14. All right, Ezekiel 14. Somebody mind reading verse 14. And then we'll probably back up to look at the context. So Ezekiel 14, 14, what does it say there? Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. So something about the righteousness of Noah puts him into a very small group. Who else is in that group? Daniel, Daniel and Job. They're the only ones that get a mention for having the kind of righteousness that uh, is shared by Noah. So Noah, Daniel, and Job. Noah, Daniel, and Job. The context in this setting, if you look at verses 12 and 13, it says this, The word of the Lord came to me again. This is to Ezekiel. Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Kind of similar to what we have in the story of Noah, where you have only one guy and his family, you've got eight people in total, that are saved through the flood situation. All right? Here, God's saying, you know what? The wickedness gets to where I just can't stand it anymore. And even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land, they're the only ones that would be saved. But there's something about man's wickedness that can be so... Ugh, that unless you have the kind of righteousness described in there, you're lost. Ugh, that seems like a pretty high standard. Go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18.13, fifth book of the Bible. 
must be blameless before the Lord your God. Ooh, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. Which individual is he talking about? Huh. Boy, it doesn't look like it's an individual. Hmm. Levites? Is it the Levites? Nope. Who's he talking about? The whole, the whole, all of Israel. It's all the people who would identify themselves as God's people. And the standard for all of those people is according to that verse, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Ooh, okay. At at first we were in a category of people that only included Noah, Job, and Daniel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we thought, okay, I can't attain that. That's a standard that I can't attain. But all of a sudden we find out it's actually the same word that's used to describe the standard for all of the people of Israel at the time, okay? Well, I'm glad we're off the hook for that because that's Old Testament mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. All right, turn to Matthew 5. <laughs> Matthew 5.48, what does it say there? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> Wait, are you sure about that? This is the newer covenant. So the standard then passes over into the New Covenant, into the New Testament. And Jesus' words for the people who would identify themselves as the people of God is, you get this standard. (laughs) Be perfect. Be perfect? I can't be perfect. I can tell you that if I start right now to be perfect, just messed it up. Mm-hmm. As soon as I said that, the thought came into my mind. That's how long I would last. All right, I can sin every. I can sin every minute. Yes, I can. I, by my thoughts, inappropriate thoughts, inappropriate motives, inappropriate feelings, inappropriate. I got all kinds of baggage. All right, and I'm sure we're all in the same kind of boat. If it was based on my righteousness. I don't stand a chance. How am I going to make it however long I can live? How am I going to make it that many years? Being perfect. Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Jeff, isn't that the passage that talks about like getting along with others and you know marriage relationships and you know stuff like that? Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Ephesians 5, 25 through 7. It says this, Husbands, love your wives. Why is Jeff David? Husbands, love your wives, right? Just as Christ also loved the church. Oh, okay, there's an illustration, some sort of parallel there. Husbands and wives, Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, all right? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know what? That be perfect because I am perfect. I can't meet that standard on my own, my own righteousness. Without Christ, I can't meet that standard. The only way I can meet that standard is by Christ's righteousness imputed to me. By the righteousness of Christ on my behalf, accredited to my account, You find that, verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The illustration of husbands loving their wives, it's a model of our relationship with Yeshua, with Christ, with our Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. It's a model. (laughs) And so we find here that the righteousness that we could conjure up, 
as hard as we may try, it's going to fall short. If we try to get through this life on our own righteousness, we're going to stand before the judgment seat one day and have to give an account of how we did based on our righteousness, our works, if we did it without Christ. Okay? And when we're standing there at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not graded on a curve. We don't get to say, I was better than half these people. I was above average. (laughs) Right? Because his standard is perfect. It's not better than average. His standard is blameless. That's for the person who tries to get there without Christ. For the one who takes Christ's righteousness and receives that offering of Christ, they get to stand before Christ and they're judged based on the righteousness, not of their own selves, not of their own deeds and their own actions. They're based on the righteousness of Christ. So does that mean we get to live however we want? Does that mean, oh, I got Christ's righteousness. I'm golden. I'm good. I'm, I, got, I got my ticket into heaven. So I can sin all I want. Should I sin because Christ's righteousness has covered my sins? Should I just go on? No. There's still the ideal that we're to be perfect. We're to strive for that as a standard to live by. Recognizing we're not actually going to attain it on our own, but that Christ satisfies the difference, if you will. All right? And praise God that he does. Praise God that he does. So what is the story of Noah? The story of Noah is this. All right? It serves as an encouragement to maintain a righteous conduct and a faithfulness in the face of a dark and violent generation. But let's look at something else. Go to Genesis chapter 6 again. Genesis chapter 6, where our main text. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. I'm in verse 9. Perfect in his generations, Noah walked with God. Anybody else walked with God so far in the Bible? Not at that point, right? Yes. Yeah, there was somebody. That guy, the one that went to heaven. Yeah, That's what Esther's doing. She's pointing up to heaven. Enoch, Enoch, good job. All right. Yeah. Enoch is the other guy that walked with God. Was and there's the possibility. Senior moment. <laughs> senior moment. Enoch, you find that in chapter 5, verses 24, 22 and 24, you find that Enoch walked with God. You also have the possibility uh, in chapter 3, verse 8, where Adam was hiding himself in the garden, and he heard God walking through the garden, that maybe God and Adam used to take walks together, and on that particular day, it didn't work out so well for them. <laughs> All right. mm-hmm. So walking with God, maybe Adam, you definitely had Enoch. Later on in Genesis, you're going to have Abraham, where God says, walk before me and be blameless. In that passage we saw earlier, Genesis 17.1. And then um, you've also got Abraham in 24.40, and Abraham and Isaac in 48.15, walking with God. Kind of fun there. Verse 10, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You'll remember as we were looking for the lineage, all right, we looked at the ungodly line of Cain. That was at the end of chapter 4. And then the whole of chapter 5 was about the godly line of Seth, all right? Malachi says something interesting. He says this in chapter 2, verse 15. The first half of verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belonged to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. And we see that in the way that Genesis is unfolding. There's the ungodly line of Cain, and God says, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to do anything with that. Yes, Levet. What scripture was that? That one was Malachi 2.15. But we get to chapter 5, and what is it? It's all about the godly offspring. All right? It's the godly line. All right? It's the people who follow after Seth and his lineage. It's godly offspring. Today, how do we get godly offspring? How does God... I mean, we are God's children. Are you a child of God, Dave? 
You're a child of God. Levette's a child of God. Esther, yeah. We're all children of God. How did we get to be a child of God? Were we born into it? Were we born into that relationship with God where I'm a child of God from the moment when I'm born? Born again. Born again into it. Born again. It's not a physical process that it comes about getting God to the offspring. It's a spiritual process. And what is the method? It's adoption. We're adopted into the family. You know, adoption in our society kind of has a stigma to it, right? I remember uh, growing up with a kid that every time something came up about him being adopted, there was kind of like the stigma that was attached to it. And even though he felt loved by his family, he felt like he wasn't really belonging in a sense, right? Because people would bring it up and use it as kind of a, oh, you were adopted. as a jab. I tell you what, spiritually, if you're not adopted into God's family, you're not in God's family. We are in God's family because we're adopted. My kids... I might be a great Christian, I might be a follower of God, but when I have a kid, it doesn't mean that they're a great Christian, they're a follower of God. God has no grandchildren, all right? You're either a child of God or you're not in the family, all right? So we're all in the family by adoption. You can find that in Romans 8.15, Romans 8.23, Romans 9.4, Galatians 4.5. I'm going kind of fast. If you need me to slow down, let me know. And Ephesians 1.5. Those are places that talk about adoption. All right, moving on from there. Chapter 6, verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Filled with violence. Turn to Matthew 24, 36 and 37. Actually, we're running out of time. I'll just paraphrase it. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 and 37 says, About the day or the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus, talking about the second coming, says that the way you can get ready, all right, is to look around and see that it's going to be like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah characterized as in Genesis 6.11? In the passage we're in today, what was they known for? Yeah, sinfulness, wickedness, violence, right? That's the generation of Noah. What was the description of the generation of Noah in the very next passage that Jesus is talking about? And in Matthew 24, 39, it's this. It says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Where's the violence? Up to the day Noah entered the ark. Where's the violence? And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came. Where's the violence? And took them all away. This is how it would be at the coming of the Son of Man. Here's what I'm saying. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that generation is characterized by violence. But Matthew, when Jesus is teaching, we have recorded in Matthew 24, it's not emphasizing the violence part. What is it emphasizing? It was just life as usual. People were marrying. They were given in marriage. It was just life as usual. They were eating and drinking. What is that telling us? Is it one or the other? No, it's both. People were so wicked, it had become just life as usual in wickedness. That they were just comfortable in their wickedness, and it just became a part of life as usual. What does that say to us? And we should wrap it up with this. When we look around and we see wickedness becoming just life as usual, I tell you what, look up. Because <laughs> your redemption's getting close. All right? <laughs> Maybe that means something's about to happen. Maybe that means the second coming is coming soon. All right. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We praise you, Lord, for the nuggets that we can dig up. Also for the opportunity to study openly in this room, Lord. We praise you, Lord, for the opportunity to meet uh, without facing ramifications of a really negative sort. That's not something enjoyed by people the world over. Lord, there are people that would lose their life for doing what we're doing right here, right now. We pray that you would help us not to take it for granted. God, we pray that you would help us to go now, recognizing that your righteousness is the only way, the only reason we have any hope. 
we pray that you'd help us to share that news with others. That If they're going on their own righteousness, when they get to heaven, it's not graded on a curve, it's perfection. And if they don't have perfection, it says, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God, nobody does have perfection. They're going to be lost. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, to bring them the truth, that there is a way that they can be saved. And it's through your righteousness. Thank you. Go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.